So today, we're going to focus on some of the names of Jesus that I've chosen. There isn't uh, one particular passage we're going to use today. We're actually going to use quite a few. I completely understand if you feel a little overwhelmed with how many things I'm going to be thrown at you. I'm going to try to go a little bit slow, and uh, you can have any of my notes. But every single passage I'm pretty much going to use, I've made a slide for it. This way it gives you a chance to see it. Sometimes I do recommend, if you just take the verse and go back and maybe read through the context a little bit, it might just help enrich it a little bit. But I have a lot of content I'm going to try to go through, so I won't be able to walk through all the contexts of everything. But I really wanted to focus on some of the names that actually Jesus even claimed for himself. And I think that's important because it's one thing when someone says that you are something, but it's another when you say it yourself. So when Jesus says it himself, it's a little bit different than if uh, just the disciples claimed it or um, just a random person. Recently in my life, I've had the privilege to actually enter into some really great conversations. Um, I've had things like debates with Jehovah Witnesses at my doorstep a few times, actually. Um, I've had conversations with Mormons in my treatment room, uh, in my home office. Um, and recently I've just been running into some videos of uh, Christians evangelizing in public to Mormons and Muslims, all surrounding this, these tough questions around who does Jesus say he is. So through those recent events, it has really spurred my spirit into a desire of wanting to share these things and uh, give you a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Sharing the truth with you in such a way that you can be certain of who the Jesus is you know from the Bible and give you a defense so that you can approach it with confidence and stand against the false gospels that you run into. So I realize this is a massive topic and the more time I spend preparing, the more I found out there's no possible way I could speak to the full greatness of who Jesus is today um, in just one sermon. So, today I have chosen three names in which Jesus claimed about himself in the Bible. We're going to go through the Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself. So our first one is the Messiah. In the Greek, in the New Testament, when it's written in Greek, the word for Messiah, or Christ, is Christos, which translates to the Anointed One. And when you take, when you go into the Old Testament written in Hebrew, that same word uh, is spelled M-A-S-A-H, however you want to pronounce that, it is up to you. But it's also translated anointed or to be anointed. Now the Messiah as a topic, spans much through the Old Testament. So let me give you just a few key verses on our topic. So first of all, we'll look at where Jesus himself makes the claim that he's the Messiah. So if you're familiar with this story, this is the woman at the well, and she actually makes the claim to him, and then he confirms it. 
The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So here we see Jesus is claiming to be the anointed one that for generations they have been waiting for. So where did this Messiah promise even begin? Where do we even see this start? Well, the first mention of the Messiah comes actually from God in the garden after Adam and Eve fell. Genesis 3.15, I will put my enmity between you and the woman. And he's talking to Satan as he's cursing the serpent between you, your offspring, and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So from Eve's seed was going to come someone that was going to crush the head of the enemy, the Messiah. So moving through the Old Testament, we actually find many other references to the Messiah, his purpose, different things that talk about why he's coming and what he will do, and also prophecies that actually confirm that when he is present, what that would look like, and some characteristics and different things when he arrives. In some passages, I'll give you three that talk in, along these lines. First one's in Isaiah 61. <clears throat> the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord favor, Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of, of his splendor. So in that passage, we can see all of the actions that the Messiah is to be doing. Proclaim, bind, proclaim, proclaim, comfort, bestow, those, these things. Next one is in Daniel. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Again, showing us the type of authority the Messiah will have that has been given to him, an everlasting kingdom. Next, in Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though, I was... I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So when the Messiah was to come, he was going to usher in a new covenant as well. 
So these are just three, but there's so many. There's so many. I couldn't even could put them all in here. It would take me way too long. So just for your own fun sake, I gave you, I'm going to give you eight other ones you can just look up for fun. So we have other prophecies, and all of these Jesus fulfilled in his time. So we have, when he resurrected, this was prophesied in Psalm 16, bringing a new covenant, one we just read. He was forsaken and pierced, but vindicated, Psalm 22. He was prophesied to be born a virgin, Isaiah 7. He was prophesied as a suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Bear the sins of the world, Isaiah 53. He was prophesied to be a prophet like Moses. God said he would bring one up like Moses. And he was also prophesied to be called God's son. So the, the Messiah is prophesied all through the Old Testament. And every, every prophecy that came of Jesus, when he arrived to his death, was fulfilled when he came. Now there are some still, like in Daniel, where he is going to come with his kingdom that have not been fulfilled yet, as far as the fullness of it. But the ones, uh, there are many others that he has fulfilled in his time here. One really powerful example, I guess it's three really powerful examples of how the Bible is constructed and the power of prophecy and how Jesus fulfills can actually be shown in three examples. It's really cool here. Laura and I kind of discovered this as we were studying. But the Greek, when you use the Greek word Christos, when it's translated into the Old Testament, it actually shows up 39 times. And in those times, it's, it's, it's used when God is actually anointing three positions. Okay? And the first position is priest. Okay? And we see this in Exodus 28, 41. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint Christos and ordain them, consecrate them, so that they may serve me as priests. And here's what's great. Christ fulfilled the, the priest's role. When we see in Hebrews 9, 11, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. This is to say, is not part of my creation, is not, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered by the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, this obtaining eternal redemption. <clears throat> so Christ, of this, this Christos word, Messiah used as priest in an anointing way as God is anointing them. Christ fulfills this priesthood. The second one where this word is used is prophet. First Kings 19, also anoint uh, Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as a prophet. And then again, Jesus fulfilling this, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. And again, the prophet that they're referring to is when Moses was told by God that they would rise up. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God told Moses he was going to rise up a prophet like him. So that is the prophet they're referring to. 
again, Jesus fulfilling this. The third thing, or third title, I should say, is king. 2 Samuel 12, 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Which is kind of cool. Uh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed Christos you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. So Jesus, again, fulfilling this uh, when he's at um, his um, court with Pilate. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did the others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If I were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is not, is from another place. So Jesus is king. So this is just a few of so many ways that Jesus fulfills the prophecies of a Messiah, of the Messiah that was predicted to come. But moving to our second name today of Jesus, I want to focus on one of the prophecies that actually speaks to the confirmation of Jesus being the Messiah. So when he came, as he lived this out as a confirmation to this. So our second title or name is the Son of God. So this, this section, I come very humbly. Um, this was probably one of the hardest sections I've ha had to work through. It's a topic um, that is uh, a little bit difficult to explain sometimes and actually um, has a very big difference within faiths and different things. So I will give you the best reasonable options, I think, based on the scriptures, but I am uh, very open to hearing your thoughts and uh, all the things you may have heard to help round this out. The Son of God name is actually another way to say anointed by God. It does not mean biological son. Specific people in the Old Testament were called a son of God. There was actually many people in the Old Testament called the Son of God. And so when God would call someone his son, it was actually the way of, of showing them his choosing or selection, not his biological burden. They weren't biologically connected to them as a son. And I'll give you three examples that don't include Jesus where this is used. So the first one we actually see is in Exodus 4, and it actually involves the nation of Israel. So God says this to Moses, Then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, looking at that, we know a nation, the nation of Israel was not Jesus, or God's first nation he ever made. This was not the first born nation that was ever created. 
So when Jesus says, or God says, this is my son, my firstborn, he's actually talking about a position of selection, a selection of purpose. He's talking about a position of inheritance. He's talking about actually a preeminence, a status. Second example is actually King David. So God is speaking about David here. He says, He will cry to me, You are my Father, and my God from the rock of salvation, and I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, if you've gone through the story of David, David is actually the youngest son of all his family. So to be the firstborn, he actually biologically is not the firstborn. He's the exact opposite. But God is selecting him and choosing him, giving him the rights of a firstborn. The third example we see is actually is Solomon. So David, David has wanted to build, rebuild God's temple. God says, I want you to rest, but here's what's going to happen next. Behold, a son will be born to you, who will be a man, of, and you will be a man of rest, who will be a man of rest, sorry, and will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name will be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He will build a house for my name, and he will be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. This one to me is very interesting because in the first sentence he says, a son will be born to you. But then later says, he'll be my son. So again, if we're stuck in the context of biological family conversation, God is not speaking in the biological sense of, he's my biological son. He's saying, I'm choosing him for this purpose and selecting him anointing him for this um, purpose. So, setting all this up, we come to Jesus now. Jesus was first established as God's Son at his baptism. In Matthew 3.17. I'll read it for you really quick, even though I'm sure you know it. It says there, Behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That affirmation to Jesus being God's Son was actually fulfilling this prophecy made about the Messiah in Psalm chapter 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So Jesus, being affirmed at his baptism by God with this name, accomplished two things. One, it confirmed his selection to the people. So as they are there witnessing his baptism, and God says, this is my son. It's a confirmation of the selection that God has made to Jesus and the people around. 
It then also confirms the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy in Psalm chapter 2. This title in itself of this identity in, in Christ as, as a Son of God and a selection anointing actually had quite a bit of authority as well. Two really cool examples of, uh, well, I'll show you, just the way in which his authority was used in this way. So the first example, Jesus is healing people and casting out demons. And the demons also were coming out of many shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. So the demons are saying it. The second one in Matthew 14, Jesus calms the storm, and right after the storm is calmed, the disciples bowed to him and they said, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now both of these, these verses really were interesting to me because the demons and the disciples could have used any title to give Jesus. They could have used God, they could have used Messiah, they could have used anything. They chose Son of God. Because it, to them, again, it was, a con, it was confirmed that God had his selection of his Son. This certainly was the Son of God. In both instances we see here, they, they title him the Son of God. Again, not a Son of God, the, the ultimate, the pinnacle, the most anointed one, the anointed one, is here. The one that was prophesied to come. So, among many reasons, one of the really strong reasons I wanted to share this with you is because people like the Jehovah Witnesses believe something very different. Very different. They actually do believe that Jesus is the biological son of God. Okay? And they will use uh, passages like 1 Corinthians, or no, sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. There it says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Firstborn of creation. Now, Knowing what we know now and how God uses the language, we don't have to fear that verse. Because we understand what God means when he says Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the, uh, the authority, the, uh, he is the one that will get the inheritance. He is the position of a firstborn when it comes to all of creation. That is his position, his preeminence, his status. When it comes to that position. That does not mean he, he was physically born as God's biological son first. Because this is exactly what they believe. And they will go a long ways to support that. For example, even the, this Matthew passage is a perfect example. I showed this to them at my doorstep. And their Bible literally changes words. So it says, then those who were in the boat... They changed the word worshipped. I can't, they use a word I've actually never even heard of before, but it essentially means like a, 
it's more of like a, a formal bowing. Like it's, it's not an actual worship because you can't worship the Son of God, you can only worship Jehovah. Okay? So, but again, they would say that Jesus is the Son of God, the biological born of God. Now, using the tools and understandings that the scriptures have shown, we don't have to buy into that. We can see the truth, and when you happen to have a conversation with them, I really hope that you can have a few things to get them to think about using that, what we've talked about today. The last name we're going to go through is God. Again, this is a very big topic. Um, a lot of division comes around this conversation, and uh, this is a big separator when it comes to lots of different faiths. So I'll just do my best, and I'd love to hear what you guys think after. So to start, uh, I want to start with the, one of the more plainly spoken verses of uh, uh, Jesus being God. And this uh, comes from John chapter 10. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up the stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, and because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Pharisees here are picking up stones for two reasons. One, for blaspheming, disrespecting God's name, and two, as a man, making himself out to be God. Now, to us, with the full revelation of Christ in the Bible, this text should not come to a surprise. Considering, if you were to start at the beginning of John, in John chapter 1, we would have already known this. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus, and if you slide forward to verse 14, it says, The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So God literally became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? So Jesus not only claimed to be one with God or be God, but actually many times actually took God's name and applied it to himself. So God called himself many things in the Old Testament and Jesus many times took that name and actually used it on himself. And we see some examples. I'll give you one example here of many. Um, I want to read this to you just so it helps a little bit. 
the slide up here in a sec. But um, Jesus says to the, the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? That is the question that has been put on him. How have you seen Abraham? You're not even 50 yet. This is Jesus' answer. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, as English-speaking people, this is a very weird sentence. It doesn't seem to really make sense. But what's wonderful about the scriptures is this is actually a name that God attributed to himself. And we get this from um, Exodus chapter 3. For those of you familiar with the story, this is the story of the burning bush. And God has asked Moses now to help escort the, um, the Israelites out of Egypt. And then Moses says to God, who am I supposed to tell them who sent me? And so God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So after Jesus states this name, in John chapter 8, the very next thing that happens, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus said himself. So they knew exactly what he was doing when he made that claim of claiming I am. Made him holy. 
So once he was holy then, and his sacrifice could be given. And so then, in that faith, you live your life in hopes that you would then be able to reach what Jesus also was in the afterlife. He's their example. Again, they're so close, so close. But when you take apart these names and you don't attribute them to Jesus, you actually don't know Jesus in the fullness and you actually take away from the things he did and who he was. So before I end, I wanted to give you a really short example of a defense I used on the Jehovah Witnesses that was really strong that um, he really struggled with. So the one thing that Jehovah's do, I don't want to say do well, but make things very difficult, is their, their version of the Bible is called the New World Translation. You can look it up on the internet, it's really easy. The issue with that translation is that every single time, I should say every single, almost every single time Jesus, any of those verses I use that Jesus is God, they change them. So, when it says the Word was with God and the Word was God, instead it says the Word was a God. Or when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and the, and the Pharisees come and say, well, we're going to stone you because you're a man claiming to be a God. Not God. So every time I threw him at him, they're like, I don't understand, we don't have a problem with what you're saying. Because our version does not say that. So, that's really tough. But I found one that did not change. And it's great. Again, going to back to Jesus and who he claims himself to be, we see Revelations chapter 1, verse 22. This is John approaching Jesus for the first time. In the first chapter, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So when I showed this to him, I, said, I asked him a question. I said, Who is speaking here? Is this Jehovah or is this Jesus? He didn't want to answer me. He wouldn't answer me. Because he knew, if he said Jesus, he was who? But he had answered it for him. I said, this is Jesus, and I can prove to you. Jesus says here, I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive. Now, did Jehovah die? No, Jehovah never died. Never came back to life. So this is clearly Jesus. Now, clearly I've shown you the name he's used. The question is, where is it from? And this is where I showed him. Isaiah 44, 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer. The Lord Almighty, Jehovah. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. It's very powerful. The coolest part about our conversation with this guy was, uh, <clears throat> I have... Uh, I actually told him as well that the um, 
the translation for the New World translation was uh, made in, I think, the 50s, 1950s, which is quite recent. And I said, you change all these things. And he said to me, well, and I was using the NASB. And he said to me, well, would you be willing to use the King James because it's older than both our versions? And I said, sure. Now, at the time, I didn't have it, and I had to go. But I, I gave him my card, and I said, I'd love me for coffee. But I looked up every single verse I just showed in the King James, and it is exactly the way that I said it. Exactly. They didn't change a single thing. Okay? And the King James is an older translation than the New World. Okay? <clears throat> I share this to say that they are tricky, but the truth of God will prevail if you keep looking for it, keep looking and, and, and searching. And when we have an opportunity to speak into their lives, they are deceived and they are lost. And then the, the best thing you can do when you get into these conversations, and I said to them straight up, I just said, look, I, I know you have a lot of great things to say, but there's one difference that you and I already have, and it's Jesus. Just stick to who Jesus is. That's the difference. If you stick there, that's where it matters. Start there. It's the core. It's the foundation. And everything else will fall into place once Jesus gets set in the right truthful spot. So instead of lessons today, because I gave you guys so much stuff, I'm proposing three questions to you. You can think about it before we have discussion. Maybe we don't talk about it today, but maybe it's a conversation we have another time. How does knowing Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself change the way you live? What is it about knowing these things now about Jesus that really changed? Two, how does knowing what we've learned today change your perspective of Jesus, God, or even the Bible itself? And lastly, how does today and the truths you've learned affect the way you live in your home, in your work, or school even. Whatever you do. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for all of what you are. Um, and I know we just dabbled in just a little bit of all the things that you, you are in your fullness, but I pray that as we uh, know you deeper and deeper that you will continue to transform our hearts and, and really allow us to live in the, your identity and who you have told us you are and who have showed us that you are. We're grateful that uh, you came down and um, on our behalf um, reconciled us to God and through that now we'll live a life of thankfulness and uh, just pray for continued open doors. I pray for boldness. And I pray that as uh, we enter these conversations that you will use your spirit to bring the truth to us despite our emotions and how we're feeling. But a 
allow us to take the opportunities to share the truth with people that are lost. And I pray that you lift the blinders on their eyes as we speak truth in them and that their heart would receive 